to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Um, maybe kind of a, a little bit of the Liquid and Grit podcast, too. I don't know. Maybe we'll co-release this. We'll see. Um, but uh, I, I'm really excited to have uh, Brett with me from uh, Liquid and Grit. Um, Brett, you know love all the stuff you guys are doing. Um, super excited for, for today's conversation. I know uh, both of us kind of share a lot of the, the same beliefs in, in building companies and work-life balance and all those kind of things. So uh, super excited to, to d- dig into those kind of things. But uh, before we do, I always kind of like to ask, like, what's your journey? Like, how'd you get, you know, to working in games? Uh, yeah, I, that's a good question. Uh, well, I was fortunate enough to basically be a hockey player for the first 25 years of my life. I played through college and then actually played professionally. And I got out of, I basically was somewhat spoiled to do something I really loved to do for so long that when I got out, I realized I need to go find something else I really love to do because if I don't, I'm going to be terrible at it. And that's always kind of been a recurring theme in my life is like, go find stuff you like to do. And do a lot of it and good things happen so I used to love poker and I grew up playing cards and my family part of my mom's side is Canadian and just cards and games in general is a big part of that of my culture or so my family's culture and so I I ended up landing a gig in uh with a guy named Pete Parsons who's the CEO of Bungie Studios for a long time helped create Halo uh, when I was in Seattle yeah. after I quit playing hockey and then I ended up so I worked in a startup and I ended up going to business school and uh that was around the time when I was sort of looking for something interesting and one of the second years was like oh I'm interviewing at this company called Zynga it was before they were big I'll introduce you to hiring manager and I was like oh that's a perfect fit they had Zynga poker at the time I love poker <laughs> I was like this is awesome like I can be creative uh the art in yeah. the walls from my dad. Like I grew up in kind of a creative household too. So I ended up getting three 30 minute interviews at Zynga and landing an internship, all remote, like legit, just the conversation. And then fell in love, you know, was that Zynga? I fell in love with it and was like, this is, this is awesome. This is where I'm supposed to be. So that's know. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then did a bit at, at Blue Shell and then, you know, tell us about, liquid and grit like what do you guys actually do uh, and like how'd you get started well i always wanted to start my own company I, I also come from a pretty entrepreneurial family background and when i was working in games i always felt like other parts of the company had support developers had websites and forums and things like that and designers had the same thing but product really didn't have that in game design as well so I was always thinking like, geez, you know, we're doing all this work, tracking other games in addition to owning our own games and and all the other stuff. It'd be great if we had a little bit more support. So that in combination with actually my father-in-law and my uncle both started pretty similar businesses in their perspective fields. And so with, with like kind of desire to start a company, what I felt like was a need and with somewhat of like a blueprint for starting businesses in in specific industries that were around research and reports i left blue shell and basically was like i'm gonna 
I'm going to start a report and see if a couple of people that I know from Zynga like it and want to buy it and <laughs> create a report and basically had coffee with my buddy Nico and um, also a couple other buddies. Um, and they were like, yeah, we'll buy it. And I was like, all right, let's do this. So <laughs> kind of a simplified version of it for the podcast, but that's more or less what happened. That's great. Um, so tell me about like what, you know, your ideal customer, you know, looks like, and like, you know, for, for someone that maybe hasn't worked with you and is, you know, heard a lot about liquid and grit, like myself, like, okay, what do you actually sell? Like, what, what do I get? You know, if I do kind of work with you guys, just so I can kind of wrap my head around it all. Yeah. Well, we do monthly reports that cover specific markets, the big markets, casual casino and core right now, we're going to expand to racing and sports next. And really that is sort of the, what I call like sort of the top of the information pyramid where every month you're getting more or less what you generally need to know about what's going on in your market. So major launches, soft launches, breakout apps, new feature releases of notable event releases. And then we go deep into what we call an impact driver. So something that is making an impact on revenue on another app. And we analyze that. And that, that's a nice 25-page report that you can get through in 25, 30 minutes. And all of the links and references in the report generally go to our design portal, which is an online tool that most people have access to as well. And that will allow you to dig deeper on a particular topic you're interested in. So if you see a collection feature or a tournament feature or whatever, that you're interested in, you can click on it and open up and see screenshots or further analysis or um, persona reports or economy spreadsheets. And you know that starts when you start getting down deeper into the information pyramid. And then the actual portal has over 25,000 libraries of features, events, and content. So you can really dig deep into whatever you may want. And then we do a bunch of other things. We do custom work as well for, uh, a lot of some of the larger companies we work with and we're also built um, an internal tool that does some really cool stuff with revenue estimate analysis and median standard deviations and stuff like that interesting uh, how do you how do you guys differ from like a, a game refinery game refinery i mean i don't know them super well their product and obviously don't want to speak to them but what i do know what i generally hear or sense is that Game Refinery is a little bit more focused on providing insights into deciding the next sort of market opportunity where you're basically trying to create a hybrid game, for instance, and you're looking mm -hmm. at, okay, how, what if I took that, you know, battle Royale and then mesh it together with a match three puzzle or whatever you want to do. And what does that market look like in terms of revenue? And I can click on a bunch of apps and, and sort of see it. So it's, it's much, I would say it's more on a higher, uh, if you think of a data taxonomy period pyramid it's a little bit higher in terms of the data being revenue app tagging and app categorization and, and app taxonomy yeah. whereas i think w where we specialize in is a little bit deeper in terms of live ops management right so if you're if you own a current game right now and you're curious about how you're interested in driving revenue at the next event or the next feature or something like that you know we're really going to be able to provide you with ton of insights into what type of event you should release, how, what, what type of creatives you should include in it, how the flow should go, 
what you should think about, how you can make it innovative, who's done it before, what's worked, what's worked in other markets, you know, just a ton of resources for you as a game designer, product manager, or someone thinking about a roadmap to figure out what to do next. Yeah, that actually sounds, I literally was telling somebody that like, we need a product like that um, (laughs) the other day. Um, So you guys actually have, you know, you go through and you record all the stuff that you see to like, be able to model out like the economies of games and the economies of like these live ops events of like, how much content are they giving away? You know, what what are their syncs look like? You know, kind of end-to-end type of a thing? We do provide downloadable Excel spreadsheets for economies. And for our custom work, we do massively comprehensive economy work. Or we've done one, for example, where we spent over $10,000 in IAP purchases. And it had, uh, yeah, it was a massive study and multiple players. The spreadsheets are ridiculous. There are 160 columns deep and every, you know, every basically engagement is a row. And so, yeah, we do do very comprehensive economies, economy work. We're actually in the more subscription side, we track, we're releasing a tool actually called the tracker that will be able to show you every event that's live in every app every day. Um, So that's, so we are tracking stuff you know, very detailed. And that really helps like if your insights team is really trying to determine like, is this the feature? What's their live ops calendar? Like, what are they doing? What do we have to do to match them or beat them? Or what do we have to do to differentiate for them and things like that? Yeah, that's interesting. I know I'm, I'm grilling you with a lot of questions, so hopefully folks <laughs> find this interesting, but um, how do you figure out what events are going on at once, especially like if you've got somebody more advanced and they're using like a segmentation tool where, you know, your your new users might have a different event or a different version of an event than say your elder users. Do you just kind of offload that to players that are playing some sort of like automated solution or yeah, how, how do you guys get that sort of data? That's definitely more difficult data to get you know, generally our players are focused on more or our analysis focused on more of the more heavily engaged users. Again, because that's more focused on a information that a live game team would want to have. Yeah. Uh, We do have tracking on like the new user flow and things like that in the database as well. Interestingly, we don't see as much segmentation as you might think. I think at this point, because uh, players talk so much, it's difficult for games to do that. (laughs) But and because we do have multiple accounts for a game and we'll check it um, mm. and sometimes we'll find or, for example, like we found a bug uh, and the game team thought we would like hack their game or whatever. And they emailed us and uh, they had released the feature prior to, to when they wanted to. And it was already up in our database. Before. <laughs> <laughs> and uh. we were we were kind enough to take it down immediately because all of our subscribers are partners and uh, we feel as though they're partners. So um, we took it down and we told them to let us know when we can upload it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, in our custom work, we will do, like I said, for the economy stuff, we'll do eight, 10, 15 um, player throughs and be able to see the differences in the experience. And surprisingly, I, we don't actually see as much segmentation as you might think. So do you think that's purely because of you know, players talking or, or because, you know, I think if you do it in certain ways, it can be actually valuable to players. Like, you know, League of Legends has the, I forget what it's called, but it's like every so often you can roll the dice and you get like five random skins that are based on like your play 
style and like the the characters you play most often and they'll be at like random discount amounts and like every player knows that everyone's going to be unique and you kind of roll the dice of what the discount is and players love it um do you think it's more of like the tone of how you communicate it and and set the tone for your players but like you know when i play clash royale uh I always hear Supercell toting they've got these incredible, uh, you know, machine learning algorithms for putting the exact specific thing into the store to get people to spend more money. And well, I tell you what, I think their algorithms suck because I never have anything in the store that I want to buy. I'm like, dude, I've been leveling up this uh, Royal Giant, say, for the last like four weeks. Like that's what I request. And that's what I up like how how much more data do I need to give to you to tell me that if you want me to spend money, you should offer me the last amount of Royal Giants that I need to finish off this thing that I've been working on. Like, it doesn't seem that hard, but like, you don't do that. Um, and like, to me, that seems like the, the baseline of, yeah, segments, because it's always going to be easier to sell an umbrella when it's raining out for a player, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's definitely segmentation. I think that, that it's maybe even deeper than what we're tracking. I think in terms of larger mm-hmm. features and events, those are released universally. Right. So yeah, sure. if you're getting into like maybe the RTP of a slots game or the matchmaking of clash or what they're showing, maybe what they're showing. But again, I think that it's because they're really worried about backlash, right? Where you get some deal and you're my friend and I get some other deal. And I'm like, <laughs> why didn't I get the you know Royal giant today? And you did. And that's why I don't see, think we see as much of it on the, <laughs> the feature side. That said, I have been, we have been writing about this for a little while. And I do believe that this is continues to be an opportunity for gaming to explore. And I think the opportunity really is in a combination of both what I call, you know, backend personalization and user user input personalization. And I think a good example of this is what YouTube does, where it's asking you whether you are interested, not interested in something, want to subscribe, not subscribe, thumbs up, thumbs down, in addition to having an algorithm. And, and I'm a power YouTube user. I have premium subscription and love it. <laughs> Uh, and have for a while, although their their algorithm has gotten, they haven't really perfected like the year long user because it just like the algorithm stops being interesting after a while. It's it just starts like anyways, back cycling, to my main, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it just starts cycling. Like oh, okay, you like you know you like fishing here, fishing here's more fishing, 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 fishing. Like we're so confident you like fishing, you let me stop fishing. Whereas the beginning is kind of cool because it's like well you like fishing, how about people who like fishing also like this documentary of Mike Tyson. You know, and I would be like, oh, that's super cool. Like, I'm going to watch this random documentary on Mike Tyson. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like really, I, I like the algo. Anyways, back to my point about gaming, which is that I think because gaming has, you know, strengths are, are also all very often weaknesses in life and in business. And I think because we're so strong on the data side that gaming companies are less interested in asking their players you know, what they want. But I think that no matter how good an algorithm is, players' preferences change by the minute or might be different for one day or whatever it is. And I think that there's a real opportunity for games to get more input from players. Like, how hard was this quest? How hard, you know, how much did you enjoy this? Do you want to buy a Royal Giant? Are you interested in a discount? Are you interested in a bundle? Are you interested in what? Like, is is this flow a thumbs up, a thumbs down? 
And you don't see uh, as much of that as I think you could in, in gaming. Yeah, that's interesting. It wouldn't actually be that difficult to incorporate that even into like a uh, a matchmaking system. Now, you know, there, there could be abuses and stuff you'd have to code for, obviously. But like, you know, I feel like the games for me that are the most rewarding, at least when I'm, you know, doing PvP against somebody else, is when I'm matched with someone that is equal to my skill or maybe even slightly better. And if I can manage to win, you know, that close fight, we're duking it out the entire time versus it's not as much fun when I just steamroll a person. I mean, it's a little bit of fun to do that a little bit, but you know, it's not as much fun. It's not, you don't have those emotional highs and lows when you're just steamrolling it. Likewise, when you just get trounced completely, it's kind of like, Oh, not, not that great. But if you have that, you know, really head to head, you know, and then, you know, it could be matchmaking afterwards. You're like, well, how was your match? Was it a good match? Was it a bad match? Or like, was it too hard or too easy or just right or something like that? Um, I don't know. Could be interesting, but I, I totally get that. Would you, you know, do some sort of like surveys to collect that kind of stuff? Or, you know, how if, if you had to incorporate that as a, a PM right now, how would you collect feedback about these different things well i would i would take inspiration from again what i see out there already working i think in youtube is a great example but i think i would apply it to something that would have a smaller percentage of well a smaller risk on the game than matchmaking so for example we do see things like uh what we call like sort of opt-in like i said opt-in personalization where you get to pick what difficulty you want on a quest or a mission right and you see that in battle passes and things like that too where you can try different levels of or you can try different levels of the of the path but there's not a ton of that right and and when you're picking it let's say you're picking the version the light version of it like you have really no insight whether light or medium or heavy is good for you right and so what i would do would be if i had some type of feature like a mission or anything that pushed people right challenge or something like that at the end of it i would ask them like rate your experience on difficulty right and then that input would get fed into okay this player type is too challenging it's too easy and then that information would be presented to the next player that would see okay players like you prefer medium players like you prefer hard and what i think game designers are doing now is they're saying, oh, well, I'm just going to put them in that flow. The problem with that or the benefit of doing it with some type of opt-in personalization is that even if in general, I am somebody who, let's say, is best suited for the difficult challenge, right? Today might not be the day for me to want <laughs> to do it, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm learning piano, for example, for my kids got a keyboard and it's like, sometimes I'm ready to progress on my piano skills and pick on like the new skill. And sometimes I just want to play the song that I played yesterday. That's pretty easy. Right. And I think that games don't do a great job of allowing for that. In addition to saying, here's the path to get better at piano playing based on yeah. people like you here's our recommendation. And actually the app uh, that I'm using for learning piano, simply piano, which is excellent. doesn't do a great job of that. It'll sort of like have you practice it once and go, okay, are you ready to play? Like there's no, it's like binary, right? It's not like, okay, do you want to go back and play it again? And, and there's, there's, there's less of that user input 
and it's fairly easy to implement. It's, it's less, not that expensive um, to do, I don't think, where you're just getting a player to input the data, right? Like you don't actually have to have backend AI or anything like that, right? So, yeah. No, I think it's um, Knighthood, which was published by King for a little while, but now it looks like uh, Midokai is, is publishing them directly. Um, but uh, one interesting thing that I, I saw in there when I played that game, this was a while ago, so I don't know if they still had it, but they did have this like guild uh, survey system where um, every week there was like a, a big boss that you'd have to work together as the guild to beat. And if you beat, you get some sort of reward. Uh, but they added a survey in where you could actually survey all your guild members and vote like, what do we want to work towards this week? Like this reward or this other reward? Um, and I just thought that was fantastic because it's like, okay, well, we, we get to talk as a guild, we get to all kind of vote. And then like the vote kind of determines what we're ultimately working towards. And just like, I feel like that probably drove more engagement and more work because, well, I, I committed to this thing. Now I feel obligated to come back and actually do my part to, to really work towards that thing. I, we, we do see a lot of surveys in, in the games and I think those are great. I mean, they're extremely inexpensive implements is a link to a you know, mobile-based survey or you can build it in your app if you want but uh, a quick uh, yeah zynga when i first was at zynga a long time ago now we had a tool called a link test tool that any product manager could use this was back in facebook days but you could go in and put in any expression you wanted to and then it would show up in the app you could and the users could do a up thumb down thumb or x out and so you could theoretically try out ideas i uh, and say things like do you want a leaderboard do you want a tournament do you want a collection and you'd have to obviously think about how you phrase it and things like that and then they could what then you could put let's say 0.5 of uh, the user base and then people would put click thumbs up thumbs down and within a day or two you'd have data now, I know what probably people are listening and say, well, that's not statistically significant, all this stuff. And I completely agree. I wouldn't go and build a collection feature based off that data. And what I what I used actually that data for, which was a secret, uh, one of my secrets to my uh, being successful as a product manager was I would use actually for the header copy. So I would use very similar expressions that I would think about for the header. So if I was going to release, let's say, a mini game feature, I would say like win a million coins, right? And I'd spell out million with the word, you know, spelled out. Or I would say win a million coins with dollar sign one zero zero zero, et cetera. And then I would do it without a dollar sign. And then I'll do an explanation point or I'd do it with a period. Or I would say you are going to win. And then I would test those and I would see which one of those expressions did better. And I, found that there were like text-based stuff that really helped and in copy mm -hmm. interestingly enough a text copy was surprisingly important for game design and i think it's something that people don't really think about they just write yeah. whatever they think right and they all, <laughs> right for example i tested questions and questions don't work better but people love to write questions right are you excited to play this it's like those those don't work nearly <laughs> as well as statements um dollar signs and writing out the numbers work much better than spelling it out um, certain things like that. And it, it would help me a ton. Oh yeah. I think one of my, my favorite offers that I've ever seen anywhere and, and it's psychologically delivered perfectly um, is in game of Thrones conquest. 
as soon as you complete the Fatui, you get awarded your very own dragon egg. And it is awesome because everyone that's playing Game of Thrones wants to have their own dragon, right? And then you get an egg for free. Mm-hmm. And right on the back of feeling so great about getting this free gift, the game asks you, you know, for a little offer. And and what does it say? You know, does it say, you know, 10,000 wood deal or whatever? No, it says hatch your dragon. That's, that's what everyone wants to do. I have got a dragon egg. Well, of course I want to hatch it. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that like if you really examine like what are you getting? Oh, you're just getting a whole bunch of wood that you can like go in and, and click a bunch to ultimately like hatch your dragon. But that's not what you're selling. You're selling getting to have this baby dragon from the egg. And you're kind of feeling generous because the game just gave you this egg, which, you know, you've got that uh, psychological principle of reciprocation going on there. And I, I just love it. And but yeah, it, it's all about those words and like knowing your audience. Um I guess, you know, that's that's one other thing that I was kind of curious about from your platform perspective. So, you know, if, if I'm a PM and I'm looking to add something into my live game, I don't think it's as simple as just going in and looking like what have my competitors done or like what, what features am I missing and how do they implement those? I think those are important things, but I think it's important for you to like know and understand your audience and the things that they want and the things that they need and the way that they work and the problems that they're having, because I think that is going to be so at least somewhat unique to your game. Um, is there any way with liquid and grid or otherwise to like incorporate that kind of a thing, or is that really just up to the PM to get some ideas of features and how they've been implemented and then put on their goggles that filter it down through their audience's lens and kind of take it from there. If you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, we do have player persona reports that you can download on the platform and we do do also custom projects because those can be very expensive because you need to buy tens of thousands of dollars worth of user data. And we have done projects like that upwards of a couple hundred thousand dollars for, for teams, but I'm just giving perspective. I'm not like trying to boast about it, but I think people don't talk about money and I'm, it's just fast forward stuff. It's like, if someone comes to like, Hey, I really want to do a user report. It's like baseline for that is, is tens of thousands. Um, and it gets expensive because the user data is expensive. So you do, you can download uh, persona reports on our platform. Yes. Uh, to answer your question, I think that, that you can use those. I think it's a good way to think about things when you're trying to create more innovative features, right? And I think that a great product manager or a director of product or whomever is owning the roadmap is thinking about the roadmap in terms of a financial portfolio where on one end, you're going to have safer bets where you have lower expected outcomes, but lower risk as well, right? So you're going to have something that you're going to release that's an event, for example, that could drive 1% lift in revenue for a week, but you're 90% confident that's going to happen. And and you're pretty confident it's only going to take three days to develop, right? And and that's the expected value equation that I'm going through. Where, and you, let's say you have like 60 to 80% of your portfolio in that range, depending on the strategy or company, the role of your game within that company and so forth. But the rest of it, when you get down to that 20 to 10%, that's where you want to start becoming more innovative, more, uh, you know, getting into the mind of the player, thinking about that and getting in your own mind. I think probably that like 
70 to 90% range, that's where those player persona reports and that user research, I think, plays a, a really great role because you can really kind of ask the player, okay, what is it that you want? The surveys that you're talking about, what is it we're missing? What are the things that you're, you know, you're kind of yearning for and then, and trying to satisfy them there. I think probably the last 10% is more you put on those goggles and you think about like, what is the next thing that no one's thought about, even our players, mm -hmm. and you kind of present them with something. And that's something that has a much more, a lower likelihood to succeed. But if it does hit, it's going to be incredibly valuable, right? It's going to be the next game. It's going to be the next future that no one's thought of. It's going to like really wow your players, but there's a decent chance it's going to totally fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true for sure. I love it. Okay. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about um, just kind of general company building and such. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of folks. Well, actually, I think there's a little secret that everyone knows, but nobody really talks about. Um, so maybe it's not much of a secret. Um, and, and that's a, like, I feel like just about everyone in games has this secret dream of someday, like running their own studio and having full creative freedom to make, you know, whatever it is they want to make. Um, but you know, when I think about building companies and, and company leadership and stuff, like so often the success stories and the, the celebrated things that are out there, I feel like, you know, you hear these entrepreneurs, there was like, you know, them against the world. And, you know, they were working these brutally, you know, working a hundred hours a week and they achieved something you know, totally awesome and stuff. Um, but I was just kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts and opinions on, you know, starting and building a company? Like if you had to go out and let's say start a new gaming studio today, um, what, what steps would you take to setting culture, setting vision, building a team? What would you look for a team? Like, you know, what sort of mindset would you look for in your studio? And I don't know, I, I'm asking a lot of stuff here, but you know, you just, just kind of, you know, give, give me the whole spiel. Like what would your team building process look like? What sort of work-life balance would you strive for? And, and maybe like, why would you do those things? Wow. All uh, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I've thought about this because yeah, it's always all of our dreams. I think to start a gaming company and create the next Clash Royale or whatever the game may be. I, and if I were to do it, and if I were talking, or if I was talking to someone who's thinking about doing it, I think probably one of the most important things for starting a company and maybe it's just be successful in life is to, to know yourself first. And that's kind of a weird thing to say when you're thinking about starting a company. But I think by knowing yourself, you can start to understand what type of company you, uh, you should create and what type of model you should use and things like that. And I'll get into specifics and I'll just talk about myself, but I can translate it is I am very motivated by being able to own all my own decisions. So when I was a product manager at Zynga, I loved the fact that there was a little bit like this Peter Pan mentality where there was one adult and like a bunch of kids run around doing whatever they wanted. And I love that about Zynga. And as long as you kind of kept on producing, you were left to your own devices. So I, when I started my company, I wanted complete control of all decisions. I wanted, I didn't want a partner. I didn't want investors. I didn't, I just wanted to make my own decisions. I don't care. We're going to work here. We're going to work this way. We're going to do this, you know, and I'm not like tyrannical about it or anything, but I just wanted to be able to do that if I, if I wanted to. Yeah. And that knowing that, and a few other things about, about 
who I am. Like I, um, I'm okay with doing something for a very long time. I'm okay working 10, 20 years on something. I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to spend a lot of time with my family. I want to do some of these other things that those constraints really helped define the business model, for example, that I was going to use to start my company, which I self-funded, which allowed me to have the decision, right? Because if I, versus if you're someone out there who that's less important and you want to create Clash Royale, you know, the next Clash Royale in the next five years, right? Then it's pretty clear that you're going to need to raise money and you're going to need to really get after it. And you're going to be need to get make sacrifices in terms of some of the decision making, some of the ownership of the company, some of the things like that, right? And and I think that's really really important, particularly if you're going to have other founders, right? Because it's like you want those things to be aligned. And I mean, I would write them down because those constraints really just help set this help set the structure of the business and the structure of the business and the way that you make money. I feel like is so important to everything else that that happens after that. And it really sets the tone for the culture and the hiring and things like that. Right. Because you can, again, can you imagine you, I, I don't give any equity, right. Because, because of the, you know, what's important to me, someone else might not care about that as much. So they might be able to give away equity and have partners or have serious founders. And that would influence the structure of the company and the culture of the company and who they hire and all these different things. So I would really start there. And then I think time horizon is a really important one too. I mean, I'm just somebody who, for whatever reason, God gave me this gift and it's, it served me well. It's like, I, I played hockey every day for 25 years straight. And I'm pretty confident that's probably a true statement. Okay. I started when I was three. So it's 22 years straight. I don't know how many days I took off. I don't think many at all, but to me, it wasn't work and liquid and grit's very similar. That's a skill of mine. So it's okay for me to think in like a 10, 20 year horizon, but I will say that regardless of what you do, I would probably think in a 10 year horizon, at least mm -hmm. minimum, because there's very few companies, even the best in the world, Facebooks, Teslas, like you look at, you know, they, these companies, King, uh, Roblox, okay? These companies don't just pop out of nowhere and become great companies in day one. They, these are the, those are the best, right? So let's say you're the best. You're still going to be working on this for 10, 15, 20 years, right? So you better like it and you better like the structure and you better want to be able to do it for 10 years. And the flip side is that's a huge advantage. Right. Because if you can think about in a 10 to 20 year horizon, you can say to yourself, well, I'm OK making $150,000 this year or $100,000. If next year I'm making 150, you know, 200, 500, you know, and then 10 years from now, maybe I'm making a couple million dollars. That's great. Or I'm making a billion dollars or whatever it is you're making. But if you if you want it all to happen in day one, like that's not that's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> I feel I you there. Answer. Yeah, no, I, I uh, remember when I started my first company and uh, yeah, I bootstrapped it too. And I taught myself how to code and did all that stuff. And yeah, I, I think I had that similar sort of long-term mindset, um, which, you know, where I am now has definitely rewarded me, but it was like three, four years of just like coding and work and all this kind of stuff where I wasn't getting a dime for those hours. Right. You know, had I gone back and, you know, just been a consultant and, and worked all that, you know, with paid an hour, hundred dollars an hour or whatever, you know, I would have made far more much, 
for far more money. Um, but it, it was the long-term play, right? Um, you got to invest it and it does take time. Um, everyone kind of said Roblox just like came out of nowhere. But if you look, it's, it's been around for like 15, 20 years. And like for most of the time, it's just like skirting yeah. along. And then finally it, it, it gets the uptick and then it just, you know, yeah. takes off. Um, yeah, it, it takes a, a really long time. Um, so I think that's why I personally like to set a vision that, you know, we can share like with user wise, our vision or uh, well, our vision is to engage and entertain the world. Our 10 year goal is to be touching a billion people per day in some shape or form. Um, and so, you know, that that's a tangible goal that we can work to. And, you know, we're going from millions to hundreds of millions to billions, but we can kind of see what is that clear path, you know, look like and how do we actually get there? Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting, but that gives you a lens to focus in too, because there's so many things you can do within the context of business. But, you know, when an opportunity comes up, you can filter it down to that lens of, well, is it going to help us reach a billion people per day? Oh, no, probably not. Okay, well, throw it away. We're not going to do that thing because it's not going to actually help us like achieve that goal that we want to be, you know, 10 years from now. Yeah. And I think both of us are, are examples of it, but I don't think it's celebrated enough the bootstrap longer term horizon business model. And I actually, if you look at some of the better companies in the history of, of like the last hundred years, a lot of them have been, I mean, Microsoft didn't raise a lot of money. Facebook didn't raise a ton of money early on. Like these companies, you don't necessarily have to go the, I'm going to raise a million dollars day one route. And I would say that if, you, if you're okay with working on it in 10 to 20 years, which in games, most people are. I mean, the funny thing about it, and I realized this early on, is a lot of people will make their great game and it'll sell it. And guess what they'll do a year after they sell their company? They'll go start another gaming company. Like they, you know, granted they're <laughs> rich or whatever, but aren't you rich when you have a gaming company that's successful? Like you're making probably decent money and you have a gaming company, right? Like you're you get to make games right and so it's like okay so is it really worth it to sacrifice that upfront capital which in the beginning seems like a big number but later on it probably seems like a small number so that you can sell it in five years only to then start another gaming company right and versus i would push you to think like okay how can i keep my keep um, my equity and make money early on and extend my vision to 10 years or 15 or 20 years and go, okay, the first game is going to be not Clash Royale, right? It's going to be the game that makes us $500 a day or whatever it's going to make us enough for us to sustain. And then the next game is going to make us $2,000 a day. And the next game is going to make us $5,000 a day. And guess what? I get to run this company for 20 years making games and yeah, eventually I'm still going to be rich, but we've talked about this, like rich, I think the definition of rich needs to be adjusted too. And uh, I think we've shared this conversation as well. It's like, I would, as you search into who you are, I would define what rich really means and don't define it in terms of how the world wants you to define it, define it for, for yourself. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, like I've made a lot of money, you know, you, you could say that, um, 
now comparatively to like uh, bill gates or even something like okay yeah i haven't made a lot of money but i've made enough money that like we have no debts our mortgage is paid off our car loans are paid off our student loans are paid off i have literally everything that i could want and if i want something i could buy it with maybe the exception of uh, a little crotch rocket motorcycle, but I haven't sold my wife on that idea yet. So um, <laughs> probably out of reach. Um, but, you know, I probably could buy it too if I wanted to. But what else am I going to do if I have $100 million in the bank? Probably not much different. Um, yeah, maybe I've got a little more security. Maybe I could buy a bigger house, but are those things really going to be that meaningful to me? Probably not. If I buy a bigger house. It's just going to happen. Like when we move from an apartment to a house, we just bought more stuff to fill it up, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, I think it's about the, the things that, that matter to you and where you're at. And also the thing that I find really fascinating, you know, I look a lot at like Helsinki and there's been all these game studios that started five, seven, 10 years ago. And all of them have pretty much gone through the full cycle and they're starting to like get fully acquired. You've got like um, seriously and Redecor and all these, and a lot of them, like they sold generally for like hundreds of millions of dollars. But if someone is buying you for a significant premium, they have to firmly believe that whatever they're going to make from your company is significantly more at least five X what they're paying right now at least. And that's if they tell you, because they're probably going to want to bid a lot under that so that they're going to make like 20 X. Um, right. And if they believe that your company is going to be worth at least a billion dollars and you're really just getting started, like usually these game companies are getting picked up, like right when they finally start to like really get some good traction on a game or whatnot. Why wouldn't you want to do that for a few more years, even if you just do it for a few more years and then you finally look towards an exit, like, if you maintain that momentum and you keep growing it, like it could be a far bigger exit if that's really what you care about. But uh, I don't know. I, yeah. I think a lot of I think a lot of these companies are selling out, and they could have all been billion dollar companies. They all could have been Zynga, but they're you know they just keep getting rolled up. So yeah, I I agree, and I think one of the things I love about being an entrepreneur is I feel like the way to create the most value is to think about what everyone is doing or think about a problem and find a creative and new solution for that problem or that opportunity or whatever is presented to you. And I think that acquisition is a, is a great example of it. Right. And I am blanking on his name right now, but the founder of big fish did this and he has a really great story. And I was really impressed with his, his company and how he did it. But at a certain point he did sell off a piece of his company in, in his words, and I don't know them exactly, but I, I know what he was trying to say was so that he wouldn't make any decisions that weren't best for the company, right? So he, at a certain point, he sold off a certain amount to make, I, I'm assuming a couple tens of millions of dollars, right? And so that he would still be making objective, good decisions for big fish. And he continued to run it for a long time. And then he sold it for a billion dollars. But I, I think that's a that's something that I would, if, if you're at that point, that's something I would explore with these companies, right? Where you're, yeah, you're selling it off to Zynga. So they have some type of partnership rights. They can, you can leverage their platform, their users to grow your company. 
And you also have 20 million in the bank so that if your company, you know, your game blows up, you're not totally kicking yourself and you, you can still retire or whatever, yep. <laughs> because that's the downside of starting your company, which is you never, ever can work for anyone again. Like, just don't even, <laughs> like you just can't, you just can't, you, 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 you've lived in Shangri-La for too long. There's no way of going back to like Gotham city and, and like, like working for someone. Um, but I think that thinking creatively about what you could potentially do, I, I completely agree. And, and, and actually that person, I think it's, um, the, I'm going to, I'm going to like, like a founder of big fish games, but, um, I know his name, let's say Paul Thielen. Yes. Paul Thielen. Um, uh, he, guess what he just did like a year ago. I was just liking on LinkedIn. He just started another gaming company. I mean, he does not need to do that. And he just started with his, with like the same founders he did, uh, Big Fish. He, he just started it and I was commenting on LinkedIn. I don't know. This was like maybe less than a year ago. He's, he's back at it, right? Like that guy, I mean, you think you're liquid. That guy is liquid, right? And um, no offense, Tom, but that guy is, you know, he's buying, oh, yeah. he's got several, yeah. he's got several cross rockets in his, in his garage. He, he's got the yet. vacation homes, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he now, now what is he doing? He's starting another gaming company right it's like okay you know there it is there's the proof um the proof of what i'm saying so so yeah yeah i think you know if i was to answer the question myself like if i had to start a gaming company today um and and folks are you know free to disagree with me on this but i think there's a lot of different opportunities beyond just like funding that you necessarily need to do um now you could go the blockchain route and I guess make a hundred million dollars before you even have a game built or anything. So maybe that's the viable route in today's model. But um, if I was doing it myself, like I'd consider, you know, what if I just do some work for hire, you know, with my studio, like, yeah, that's a little bit of work as a founder to go out and kind of grind, get to work and get some, some deals and stuff. But um, a lot of the founders that I know have, have gone out and done that, or they, you know, got some work from let's say like scopely or something that kept the lights on for a few months when they're in a rough flash. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely things. So I, I do some work from hire for, for a few reasons. Well, one, you can get some stable revenue and you can build your team. And then, you know, it's also anytime you build a new team, especially when you're working on games, like I think it's really important to do something together to get a feel of how you work to like build that trust and that establishment. And if you can, build that trust and, and work together on maybe somebody else's project before you're going all in on yours. I think that adds a lot of value. Um, but I think you can actually build up some revenue and some value. Now there are certain points where I've seen companies that are like all work for hire and they just, you know, completely going all in and they never get to their own projects. But I think if you leave it at a certain perspective of, Hey, we're going to get work for hire until we get to this revenue amount, we're going to be profitable. And then we're going to bring on I don't know, maybe a, a couple devs and someone else. And like, let's start simple. Like let's make some hyper casual games and let's not shoot for, for the moon or whatnot, but let's see if we can get, I don't know, five or 10 hyper casual games that are generating, you know, five or $10,000 a day. We're going to get better at learning UA ourselves. We're going to, you know, be generating some revenue and stuff. And then now that we've got kind of some stable revenue here, okay, what's the next shot? What, what's the 10 year game that we want to make? It's clash Royale. Okay. Well, what's the next step from hyper casual that gets us to clash Royale. That's going to get there. And, you know, we can take a, a bit on this and worst case, we had to build some underlying tech that's going to help us like get stepwise there. Mm -hmm. Like I see a lot of the best gaming companies, you always hear them talking about their output, like my Hoyo and Genshin impact. 
but it didn't start with Genshin. If you look at their first game, you can actually see the tech that they built and then they built their next game. And oh, they took that first step and they built out a little bit of something else and they kind of got the monetization. And then they took that and then they built uh, was Honkai Impact or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And you know they built out some more stuff there. And then they actually tested the open world concept and whoa, that was like their biggest revenue spike. And then they took that and they took the existing monetization stuff and then they built Genshin on top of that. And so it was like this stepwise thing that took like five games and 10 years to actually get to that point. But, you know, you can track the trajectory. Um, you look at Playrix and they've done similar things like sticking in this same sort of genre and kind of building upon it. Scopely does it with their like MMOs and, and 4X kind of things. Um, if you're all over the place with the games that you're doing and you're not working towards that, you know, kind of long-term goal, you spend so much time like building something for to get this thing to work. And you start from scratch all over here um, versus that like, progressive attempt of like, Hey, we built some games, give us stable revenue. I don't have to go out and seek funding or whatnot. I could, and I probably could get a whole lot more money now that I actually have a baseline (laughs) revenue too. Right. Um, but I don't have to. And so I can take a gamble and maybe I try like a hyper casual or a hybrid casual, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) and, and maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, my company's not dead because we still have underlying revenue and, and stability and we can take what we learned and we can, you know, give it a go again. Maybe it takes a few shots, but eventually I get something that works. And then, you know, what's the next step? And I kind of keep going from there. At least that's how I like to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I, I think uh, Rework, the book, talks about this a lot. And I took, took inspiration from that. But I thought about myself in that way, right? If you have a job that, that's 100% of your time is not scalable, right? It's you're, you're, you're trading your, your time in general for... I mean, it's a little bit scalable. You get better skills, you make more money. But then when I started the reports business, I actually had a full-time job. And then I could see, okay, 2% of my time is now scalable, right? I'm making X amount a month. Well, over time, I was actively trying to, on the weekends or whatever, I had extra time to increase the amount of income and time I spent on more scalable things, more scalable revenue. And I continued to that until I got the proportion of my income large enough on scalable stuff that I could leave my full-time job. But then I even transitioned into consulting for 20 hours a week. So I ended up being consulting for 20 hours a week and then 20 hours was the reports, which was more scalable. And then I like leveled that up. And so I was always kind of thinking about that in terms of percentage of my time. Like, and I still think about that today where it's like, okay, how much of my time am I working on things that are like creating scalable income for me or scalable value over time that's just one-offs right like i send that email that's a one-off email that's not good let me figure out a system that sends that for me so i can continually scale my time to or focus my time on these more scalable things and i think that that's a it's it's almost necessary for a gaming company back to games to go through those multiple those iterations to create that great hit and I think that raising money, I'm not a big fan of it because ultimately what's going on is that you have an investor basically fast forwarding the time for 10 games to be made by betting on 10 different companies. And you happen to be one of those 10 companies and nine of them are likely to fail. And so I don't really like those odds, right? Versus what we're talking about, which is like, you're basically going to build 10 games, but you're going to build it over time. And 
and you're still going to be the driver of your destiny, much more so than hoping that you're one of those 10 companies that they gave a million dollars to and you happen to be the, the rocket ship, right? And so they're hedging on you, but you don't have a hedge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, your hedge, I guess, is that you raised a million dollars, but unfortunately, and this is also why I didn't like it, I, the salaries you get when you're a VC-backed company aren't very good. So you're not really hedging, I don't think. You're just, I don't know, you're just not making a lot of money and you're hoping someday you're super rich, which back to our earlier conversation, I generally didn't think was that valuable because you still got to sell the company in five years, then you're rich and you're kind of retired at age, let's say 40 or something, 45. And now what do you do? Now you go start the company again. And <laughs> at least for me, again, knowing yourself is important. I didn't really love the starting early phase as much as I do like more of the established phase where you have to build products. I mean, the, the starting phase can be I felt like a little bit, uh, it's just a lot of stuff you got to do that uh, it wasn't that interesting to me um, as opposed to where I am now. Yeah. No, totally get that, man. I like that approach a lot. Um, how about like, maybe like one last question, but like, what would your ideal approach to team building be? You know, if you had to do recruiting or anything like that, like, I feel like recruiting is a bloodbath right now. Everyone's looking for people. And um, yeah, well, what would your take be on, on how to build a team? Well, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. I've thought about this <laughs> a ton. Um, I think that when I was running my company, I'll say that what I realized was another sort of theme in my life is that you know, the answer to the problem is never the thing that you're talking about or looking at, right? And so... What I found in business was that was very much the case. Like most things people complain about, the underlying problem, the thing that you, if you, you know, hey, we can't let this person go because it's so expensive or we, uh, this person is no good and they'd be, you know, complaining about that or whatever the case may be. I, um, I generally found that the, the underlying problem was finding good talent and onboarding them. So I realized if I solve that problem, I solve a lot of the problems on, on the surface level of business. And I think that relying on talent and people can be very dangerous for a company because particularly for a founder, because you're, con you're, you're sort of at the mercy of those people and you either need to pay them a lot, you need to retain them and you're at the mercy of them just deciding to leave at any given point. So I would actively think about a structure that removed the need or the dependency on having amazing people to do the things that you need them to do, which is a weird thing to say. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like, talent is the, you know, talent is the secret, <laughs> you know? And it's like, if talent is the secret, right, then, then it's very difficult because you're going to be, right? Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Starbucks or McDonald's or um, Amazon or some of these giant companies where a lot of it is powered by non-talent, okay? And I'm not picking on them. I wouldn't say non-talent, but people who you wouldn't, I'm using your definition of talent. I wouldn't say non-talent, but they're powered by people who are doing tasks that are very uh, teachable is a better way of putting it. And um, mm -hmm. I apologize for saying non-talent. I shouldn't have said that. But I would say that they're powered by people who are doing tasks that are easily trained, right? And that's a very scalable model, okay? And I think that what happens is with companies is they go, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to hire the best talent and we're going to make a great game. And they do that. 
Well, now those people are rich and those people or those people know that they're really talented, right? And they're looking at you going, well, why do you own 90% of the company? And I only own 5% of the company. I am the talent. And they leave. And now you have a company with a game and you don't have that talent, right? Whereas if you build a structure of a business surround, uh, less dependent. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have good talent. I'm just saying it's less dependent and you constantly are working to be less dependent on those, on those people. It protects you and the business. And I know people may interpret that as like, oh, that's so, but it is really your role as the owner of the business to protect the business for everybody, even the talent. You know, we have talent, very talented people, liquid and grit. Even even yourself, right? Yeah. Even yourself. I actually am constantly trying to build a system so that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, the company will continue to run without me. And people are like, that's so weird. And I'm like, it's how I think about protecting the company, which will protect my family, which will protect the business, which will protect the product that we create, which will protect everyone in the company, right? It's a... so yeah, I would I would actually reverse it and think about how I can uh, reduce my dependency on it. And I mean, again, we can go on and on, but I would hire, I would create a hiring. Well, I mean, we we create a whole system for it, um, and I can go on and on. And I've talked about it on a bunch of the podcasts. But the short version of it is, is you what we've basically been able to uh, try to do, and it's worked quite well. Is you car- you basically break down tasks into or the the development of things like a game into um, distinct tasks. And when you have distinct tasks, you can hire much more easily for someone who does that distinct task. You don't need to rely on someone to be a, like a full stack dev. You don't need a full stack dev. You need someone who does the front end. You need someone who does the database. You need someone who connects the two. You need someone to monitor it. Like if you break those down, those pieces or don't need this massive full stack person who does everything, who if he decides he doesn't like you tomorrow, he walks out the door versus if you have four people to do the same job, that same full stack dev job, if one person decides to leave, you can kind of easily replace them, which is just kind of a, an example of it. Very interesting. I feel I like we can, I, feel, I feel like we go in here, but I, I know we're kind of out of time here. So I mean, um, I have time. It's up to you, but, um, but all right. Yeah. Well, let's go a little bit longer. Um, yeah. What's your take on like, when I think about, especially if we're talking developers, I find that the difference between like a pretty good or a good developer and a great developer is, is staggering. Like I never realized it until I like had a great developer on the team. And then, you know, what had taken four people like four weeks to, and they were still struggling with, and the great developer comes in and in like a day or two does more than all those other people did in a month. Um, so, and that's when I think of like super talented people. So how do you balance those two things? Yeah. Like I said, you still want to find talented people. You want to find the most talented people. This is going to be, oh man, people, I, I, I regret these things when I get off the podcast. You want to find the most talented people and be the least dependent upon them. Okay. That's the ideal business, right? So you want to have the best barista at Starbucks, but you also want to be able to replace that barista in a second, which I mean, it's just like, I think of being a business owner is being very objective and from the outside world, it sounds very cold, but I think that's kind of what's necessary to be a business owner. And so I completely agree. I think they're 
that humans generally think linearly and opportunities are found when you think exponentially. And a good example of that is in talent. Talent is not linear, but salaries generally are. So when I do hire for a developer or something like that, where I do find a talent, I pay them very well. And I'm not afraid to pay when we hire devs, for example, very well, because I do find that the talent curve is exponential and the salary curve is linear. So the greatest value gap is actually on the higher end of that uh, spectrum. Mm. And this is actually a concept that if you look at some of the early founding of Valve, that, that was the approach that they took. And, and I, I, I'm crediting them for some of that idea. And their, their whole thing was like, yeah, the, the best talent is really like 5X the value and they make like 40% more, right? So you're getting you're getting a huge value um, buffer there. So yeah. that said, I think as an owner, you again, once you get that talent, don't go sit back and be like, oh, well, I have this talent. I'm all good, right? Be tra- and, and I'll say the reason that it works internally and some of these things, you might think, oh, people at my company don't like this. Be 100% transparent up front. Tell them exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it and tell them that the reason you're doing it is to protect them as well as everyone else, right? You're, you're creating a system that makes it so that we're less dependent on you if you decide to leave. Everyone has life things and everyone leaves, right? And we're doing it for everyone, not just you. This is yeah. how we work. We're doing it for me. We're doing it so that if I decide to leave, you still have a job. We're doing it for everybody. There's redundancies. There's a system in place to de-risk the company. Um, and that actually helps you as a, a business owner as well. But it, again, it, hope, it helps the talent as well. Like they feel more secure. Oh yeah. Even within the context of like a, a game project, not even company as a whole, if you have one developer and life happens and you know, they're suddenly out of the office, everything grinds to the halt. It doesn't matter what your PMs are doing. What like development just comes to a halt. If you just have the one, you know, if you have some redundancy there, at least work can continue, maybe not as fast, but it can, you know, still go on. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's definitely a, a fair way to think about it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm completely sold on it. Um, but did you ever read the no rules rules book by Reed Hastings? It's the Netflix. No, book. no. Fascinating book. You should read it. Um, okay. <laughs> and, but they, I think they divided their, um, talent into two pools, um, now I'm going to use an example, uh, not to be demeaning or anything, but I think if memory is serving me right, I'm stealing it from the Netflix book. Um, and they kind of have the belief that there's two types of jobs. So one is a more creative job, which is a little bit more nebulous and kind of has untapped potential. Um, and and kind of what I mean by that is like a developer's job they could come up with some sort of epiphany and put it in and the effects that it could have could be a, a thousand or a million X, you know, whatever the ROI is. And then there's uh, other jobs that are more like still critically needed. Um, think of like a busser or a waiter at a restaurant. Yeah. Um, now, no matter how talented of a waiter or a busser you are, there's going to be a upper threshold to how many tables you can actually bus in a given day. Um, just because there's only so much time to run back and forth and, you know, you're, you're going to be capped. 
Um, but with those more creative jobs, they're basically uncapped potential. Like it, it could be anything. Um, mm-hmm. and so what Netflix does is for those jobs that have like a capped potential that are still essential, they look to pay salaries that are, you know, just kind of on the middle, middle of the pack. Um, for those creative jobs, they look to go out and they find what is what is your actual worth? What is the uppermost salary that you're going to get paid? And they give you a little bit more than that. And then every year they try to do that again. They actually encourage their employees to interview with other companies and to get offers and to tell them. And then they, you know, find that worth. Now they do try to mention like, we generally don't want you to avoid that. We would have rather figured that out ourselves, but sometimes we can't. So if you want to interview, like you can have time off to go and interview and do all those things and stuff, like figure out your value so that we can pay you above it. Um, and it's interesting because they're like, well, sometimes a person's value dramatically goes up because you're like one of three engineers in the world that can possibly do this thing. And, you know, your value just skyrocketed and they get a massive raise. And then other years, well, you know, we ran through the exercise and it appears that your market salary or whatever is the same. So you get, you know, nothing for a raise today. Um, and I, I find the concepts fascinating. Again, I don't know that I've completely bought into it, but it, it's a very fascinating book to, to think through. Um, so I would encourage folks to read the no rules rules book for sure. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I draw a lot of inspiration from military books because I feel like they've done a lot of study in organizational design and they have a lot of incentive to do it well. And it's very similar to a military model, right? They have the Marines, for example, who are generally tasked with certain things that are more operationalized. They do an excellent job coming in and just securing cities and things like that. And then you have the Navy SEALs who are what you were sort of talking about with a more creative, flexible system. They, they don't have to you know wear certain uniforms. They're much more free-flowing kind of creative types and they are going to go in and do an operation that no one knows what's going on in it. Right. And then you have the army and you have different, different basically groups that are generally better at different things. And, um, you know, I think that the pay thing, you know, that's just a retention mechanic, um, obviously, um, to keep people around for it. I, I mean, the one thing I would say about that is I think that, and we found this, and I think it's getting more and more important. I think that as business owners, we generally rely on financials as our retention mechanic. And I think that that's um, a uh, inaccurate assumption because we found a lot of value in other areas. And I think that if another that's another example of the world thinking one way. And if you're an entrepreneur, you can think creatively about other solutions that work well and create value for you without giving up as much. And I think that, I pay you more than any, someone else is, a, is, is, is giving up a lot for getting a lot. And I, I generally don't like those types of exchanges. I like exchanges where I give up less and get, get more. And uh, so as a business owner, I would just, I would push you to get, think creatively about some of the value you can give to people. For example, titles is a perfect example, right? You can make some of them a VP of whatever, costs you nothing. And they're all happy about it. They can get great value from it. Or you can give them remote work or you can give them flexible hours or you can give them something else that doesn't cost you a lot of money, medical, 
right? That maybe that uh, although that can be expensive for small businesses, but it, <laughs> it it can be, you know. So it's um yeah. Anyways, that's my point on that. It's just I think businesses generally like oh we pay you more, so we're gonna make you more retained. It's like yeah okay well. I have a bunch of people working there. I don't like it, but they're rich. I mean, that's <laughs> not a great model either. Yeah. No, I don't I, know about I've... Netflix. I don't, I don't know about, you know, the work environment in Netflix, but I do know they do that. And I do think that's an interesting um, retention mechanic. I just, I think it's kind of a, I would, it's a good example of kind of a lazy creative idea. We used to joke <laughs> in gaming where people would be like, well, what if we give away, you know, 20% more chips? And then they would like describe the feature. We're like, you know, why don't we just, we used to, you know, why don't we just put a woman on it? You know, like, cause the women like always sell in gaming, single poker. And so it's sort of like a cheap, it's like a cheap win. You know what I mean? Why don't we give away more, 20 more percent more chips? It's like, yeah, I mean, that's going to work, but that's not very, that's not a creative solution. You just give it up 20% value to go make like 21% value. Right. Like who cares? Yeah. yeah no, that makes sense. Well, cool, man. Oh, well, this has been super great. Um, we are on the master retention podcast. So I always like to ask the unofficial question, of course, um, and that's, you know, I think every question was unofficial, wasn't it? I, I don't know. Did you, I guess so. I guess so. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to boost retention? Like how do you keep players playing for longer? There's a, a ton of different ways. I think obviously, I mean, economy is definitely one area that's important for retention. It's a, it's a very big driver and, one of the biggest, right? So I think that's um, a good one. I think content is under, if I, if I was to say something that's not as valued in the retention game is the ability to create content, a lot of content. We were talking about you know, teams being around for 10 years, right? Like what's the difference between a team that's been around for 10 years and a team that's been around for one year? They have very likely a much stronger output system, like, mm-hmm. like some of the companies you're talking about. Therefore, they have not just better live ops likely, but way more live ops, right? right? And so they're just allowed to, they're just putting out way more content for their players, which is driving retention. And in slots is a perfect example. Like the best slots, I mean, we track all the slots apps, like the best slots apps are releasing the most slots machines. And there's a lot of benefits to that too, internally, where you can experiment, you can innovate, and you can afford to try new things because you know the next one's coming out in three days. But for the players... It's just new, new stuff. And there's an element of retention and new. It doesn't matter how like it's designed, if it's good, if it's bad, there's just something about people who want new. And if you don't have a great content treadmill, (laughs) you're going to have a hard time, um, you know, getting retention. Yeah. I want to come back and play this new mode in league of legends. Like, what is it like? How does it differ? How does it feel like? I want to come back to Fortnite for the Travis Scott concert. Like that is something unique. That is something I can share with my friends and talk about. Like, yeah, I think content is, is definitely key. Um, and we burn out fast, like something new becomes something that we're used to very, very quickly. Right. Like we, we learn and we adapt and that new thing no longer feels new very quickly and so if you're not continually pushing out the next new thing you know at some point you just kind of get bored and there's so many other things going on in life that will take your time away right so i love it that's great well brett uh this has been super great uh if 
people do have a question about anything you said, or, you know, they want to learn more about liquid and grit, like, is there a good way for them to contact you? Yeah, you can ping me on LinkedIn, probably is the easiest way. You can email me as well. I'm sure my email's floating around everywhere, but um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably easiest. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.